Do you guys like church? Me too. <laughs> I love moments like that where we get to pray over a family as they dedicate their, their home to the Lord. I love baptisms. Um, in fact, I think I've liked church pretty much my whole, uh, the whole time I've known uh, about church. or The whole time I've been in church, I've liked it. When I was a kid, I liked church. But I liked it because it was a lot like school. I got to be around my friends, but it was nothing like school because I didn't have to learn about reading and writing. It was a cool place to be around other kids. And then whenever I was a, a teenager, I liked church. I liked church because I got into to worship. I don't know about you guys, but did you ever go to like a, a church camp whenever you were a teenager? Right? Did you have that moment at every church camp where um, it's, it's like there's worship and you're involved and you're loving it and then you just start to cry? <laughs> like you get so engaged and at the end of it you're like, I love Jesus now. Because <laughs> you got all tingly during worship. I used to love worship. And then as I got older, um, I realized that I, I still like church, but now I feel like I like church as an adult because I like what I'm hearing, because I like the teaching because I like learning things, because the preaching is good. And so all throughout my life, I've liked church, but I've liked it for different reasons. And, and maybe you're here today, you said, I like church, and maybe you've got one of those reasons. Maybe you like it because your kids are in a safe, moral environment. Maybe you like it because of worship. Maybe you like the teaching and the preaching that happens. All of us come because we like it, or most of us come because we like it, right? Right? But there's a problem. See, I think that church has become something that is so different than what it started out as. The church has transformed over the years from what it was to what it is now. And it, while it transformed over the years, it affects the way that we see ourselves because we consider ourselves a part of the church. And so the church has changed so much. And I think what has happened is the way that Christians see themselves has changed so much too. Let me explain what I mean. You guys wouldn't be shocked if I said that we live in a consumer culture, would you? Right? Like I remember whenever I was a kid and I would watch Saturday morning cartoons and it was interesting how all of the commercials were tailored to a child and all of the toys that they needed to tell their parents about at Toys R Us. Right? And now all the ads are still tailored just for me. Like Facebook knows that I want a toaster before I've told anybody that I want a toaster and then they start showing up, right? Like the whole culture around us tells us that it's our prerogative to go out and shop for the best thing, to get the best thing for me, the best fit, the thing I like the most, and I can pick and choose and that there's all these options. And, and so we have this consumer culture that says you should go out and get what you want. Now, layer on top of that something about the church that I think is built on good intentions. We want the church to be approachable. Jesus was approachable, right? It was easy to be around Jesus. He didn't, he didn't have like an exclusive club. He, was, he wasn't trying to be in places that were hard to get into. He would, go, he would go eat with tax collectors and sinners. He was on the streets. He was by the well with the woman. He was, he was easy to be around, and, and he took care of people too. He was very approachable. He would feed people. He'd heal people. He would meet needs. And so I think that there is this legacy that the church tries to hold on to that we need to be approachable for people. We need to make it kind of easy to be here. 
We want to take hurdles away, right? That's a good thing. But we take the good intention of being approachable and we put that on top of a layer in our culture that says it's normal for you to go get what you want, to shop amongst the options and choose the thing that you want to fit you. And we combine those things and then what happens is we begin our relationship with the local church by church shopping. Have you guys ever gone church shopping? I have, right? I, I, I have done the thing where I'm between churches for one reason or another, and you guys, you, you leave church for one reason or another. That's a different conversation, right? But you have that moment when you, you want to get in a church and you decide you're going to go shop. So you go to like one church one week, you go to another church the next week, you go to another one, and you try a bunch of them out, right? You choose a place based on maybe the worship. Maybe you picked here because the worship is good here. Maybe you choose a place because it's where they have a great children's ministry and you want that for your kids. Maybe you go to a place because the messages are something that you agree with. They match you, right? And so again, all of these are good things, but right from the start, our relationship with the local church is built on what we get, right? We have this version of church where we decide if it's a good fit for us and so we are now the consumer of the church. And the result, since church is for you, or at least that's the way it feels like it's wired, we end up with two kinds of people filling most modern churches. On one hand, the church is full of immature believers, baby Christians, maybe not new, but not grown up. Right? People who maybe they put their faith in Jesus, but they've never taken it any further. They've never grown up. And the reason that happens in our culture is because if the church is for you and it's a buffet of things for you to take and, and, and you can leave the things that you don't want, then there's no expectation, there's no pressure. Right? So on one hand, we have immature baby Christians in our churches. And on the other hand, we make it like, um, like we're really proud when you go from being an immature Christian to being an active church member, right? Whenever you hear an announcement and you're like, I'm going to do the next thing. I'm not just going to go to a weekend service. I'm going to go to a life group. I'm going to be in this class. I'm going to go to this thing. And then you get bonus points. You get a star next to your name if you serve. Did you guys know that we keep stars? <laughs> right? But what, what has happened is church culture has changed the target of what it means to be a good Christian from being a disciple who makes disciples and turned it into the target is be the best church member that you can be. Right? So we have traded those things because of how church has changed over the years. And so I think a lot of us find ourselves here and we're one of those two things. Maybe we've just not grown up. We're here, but nothing's really changed in our life. Or we're here and we feel like we're doing a good job because every time they ask me to do something, I do the thing. I'm a good church member. And I wonder if we've become satisfied with something that Jesus would never be satisfied with. Because I don't think that's how the church started in the first place. I don't think that's what it looked like when it first started. And so what I want to do is I want to um, zoom back out a little bit. Today we're going to look into this idea that we should be disciples who make disciples. But to get there, I want to remind you that we're in a series called Everyday Disciple. Our hope for you guys, if you come to Life Community Church long enough, is that you will become the disciple who makes disciples. But a disciple at Life Community, we think, is four things. 
And we've been talking about them in this series. The first thing is a responsive follower. That it's not okay to just be a follower of Jesus. We also have to be responding to him. That the input of his word and the prompting of his Holy Spirit should result in us doing things, right? Not just saying that we follow, but being responsive. We want you to be an available friend. We want you to actually prioritize relationships enough to have room in your schedule for people because if we're going to be anything like Jesus, we need to be about people. That was last week. And then this week, we're going to talk about being a ready guide. And so I have a definition for you, what I mean when I say a ready guide, because this is where we're headed today. Our hope for you at Life Community Church, the disciples who go to church here, would be able to say, I am prepared and looking for opportunities to help someone else grow in their relationship with Jesus. That's our hope for you. If you go here long enough, you'll grow into that, that that would be true of you. But here's the problem. I think many of us aren't prepared. I think most of us are not ready to help somebody else grow up, right? And then those of us that are ready aren't necessarily looking to help. Because again, we've got two types of people in most churches, and I think it's probably true here. I'm sure you guys are above the, you know, you're above the curve, right, of course. But in general, we have a lot of people in churches that are either, uh, they haven't ever grown up, and, and, and maybe you made Jesus your Savior, but you never made him your Lord. Maybe you never got off the throne of your own life and let him take control, and so you have your fire escape ticket in your pocket to get out of hell because he's your Savior, but you've never made him Lord, and so nothing's ever changed. Right? Or maybe you're here because it's good for your kids. It's good. Your, your wife is happy whenever you come, and so you tolerate it. Maybe you're here, and you've just never grown up. Or maybe you're here, and you have grown, but church culture has taught you that you're doing great if you're just the best possible consumer of everything the church offers. And so you don't think of yourself as helping. You're getting. You get church. And so what I want to do is I want to use a story in the book of Acts to illustrate what we're looking for when we talk about a ready guide, because I think it's, it's reasonable to say that these things are probably true, that, that most people fit into these two categories, but can I also acknowledge it's not entirely your fault, right? Like, this is the culture that we find ourselves in. We, the Big C Church, have created a culture where it's normal to either not grow up or think that you have grown up when you're a good church consumer, okay? And so the point of this is not for us to feel guilty, but to have a target on the wall. And so as we look at that target, we're going to study something in Acts 18, a story, a couple who are usually the background characters to Paul's story. You probably have heard of them, but you may not have spent any time thinking about Priscilla and Aquila. And that's who we're going to talk about today. And so if you have your Bibles, we are in Acts 18. We're going to start in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Okay, so now we're introduced to this guy named Aquila, a Jew from this place called Pontus and his wife Priscilla. What's interesting is this is the only time Aquila's name ever comes up first. 
Every other time they come up in Scripture, it's Priscilla and Aquila, as if maybe she actually takes the lead in their ministry. And so Paul always names her first. This just, he met Aquila first. So that's how it comes up, right? But it says that he was a Jew and that he was from this place called Pontus. Can I be honest? I have no idea where that was. Right, like I had to look it up this week, and I was researching. I was like, I don't know. I've never heard of Pontus, right? And apparently it's on, it's on the, the coast of the Black Sea, north of where most of the stuff in the New Testament is happening. But while I was looking it up, what I found is this isn't the first time that place has shown up in the book of Acts. It came up in Acts chapter 2. If you remember the, the way that the Pentecost moment happened, there was this festival happening in Jerusalem and Jews from all over the Roman Empire would come to one place for this festival and then that was the first time that the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and they were speaking in tongues and it got a lot of attention and then Peter gives a sermon and 3,000 people get saved in that one moment. And they were from places like Pontus was in the list. These people from all over the Roman Empire. Well, they went back home after that. And so it makes sense that the gospel went with whoever was there. And it found the Jewish community living in Pontus. And then somehow Paulos gets word and he, I'm sorry, Aquila gets word and, and he believes. And then he moves to Rome. And then him and his wife have to leave Rome and they move to Corinth. And, and they left Rome because Claudius the emperor had a problem. See, the Jews were picking on the Jewish Christians. They were persecuting the Jewish Christians. And Claudius couldn't figure out who it was. And so he's like, all y'all get out. I don't know if you guys have ever had kids that were fighting. And certainly somebody was right. But you didn't care. Just shut up. <laughs> like, it was that moment Claudius is like, just get out. Right? I don't know who's the bad guy, who's the good guy. So they leave. And they go to Corinth, and then they bump into another Jewish tent maker named Paul. Have you guys ever looked back at a crazy trail of random circumstances in your life and realized that God's sovereign hand was there the whole time, putting it together? Things that felt very random as you went through them, you realize, looking back, you're like, that is exactly what God was doing. And he led Paul and this team, Priscilla and Aquila, together. And he ends up living with them. Did you notice that? It says that he stayed with them. He stayed and worked with them. In fact, down in verse 11, it says, So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Stop for a moment. Imagine what it would be like for Paul to be your roommate for a year and a half. Right? Like, I don't know Paul, but like, I know Paul from Scripture, and I have the impression that he never turned it off. Like, I don't think the guy could stop, right? And so at first, you're like, the pastor needs a place to, to crash, and you're like, sure, come stay at my house. We'll do Bible studies. And at first, you're like, the pastor lives with me. And after about three months, you're like, the pastor lives with me. Right? Like, could, I, I imagine that this is all they talked about. Now, Imagine a moment, though, imagine a world where you actually spent a year or two with somebody and the entire purpose of your relationship was to study the Word of God. I think that's actually kind of a foreign concept, really, in modern church and with modern church goers. I think, to be honest with you, I don't think most church goers read their Bible. I think we come to church once a week and have it read to us for 45 minutes. 
right? Let alone study. Let alone study with somebody else and have a conversation about it. Imagine how much they learned in that year and a half, right? But I think it's possible that that's such a foreign thing to us. In fact, I, I know it is. While I was on staff here as a pastor at Life Community Church, I had friends in the church, Christians. And for like a year and a half or two, we were best friends. There were five or six of us, Christians, and we not one time talked about our faith. I think sometimes what happens is we go to church and we hear the word, and then we have Christian friends, and we hang out with them, and we feel like we're hitting the mark on things like this. And the reality is I think it's really easy to go through life and never actually talk about the Bible, to never actually read the Word, to never actually have any conversations about this stuff, but to feel good because you've come to church. See, Paul discipled Priscilla and Aquila. And I know whenever I bring up this term discipleship or discipling, I think what happens is you guys all have probably been to other churches and you come with an idea of what that means in your mind, right? Have you ever noticed that we have words that we say that we mean one thing and then somebody else means something else? Have you ever noticed that? Like, do you remember The Princess Bride, the movie, right? And you've got that, that little, the short, bald guy who's kind of running the, the evil scheme uh, uh, behind the scenes. And there's a moment wherever he has thrown somebody off the cliff, right? And he looks over the cliff and he goes, he didn't die. That's inconceivable. And then the guy standing next to him goes, you keep saying that word. I do not think you know what that word means, <laughs> right? Because he had said inconceivable like a hundred times at this point for things that were clearly conceivable, right? Or men, husbands, do you guys know what the word fine means? Right? We all, we giggle about that, but it's like you pull up with a boat and then you're getting chewed out and you're like, but you said it was fine when I was on the phone. Right? Like we say one thing, but we don't always mean the same thing. So for, I think discipleship is a lot like that. We all have a version of what we mean when we say discipleship. So for a moment, can we pretend like your definition of discipleship is written on a whiteboard? Let's just erase it for a minute so that we can all be talking about the same thing. Okay, so here's what we don't mean. We don't mean that discipling or discipleship is mentoring. In fact, it's, it, the reason that that's such a, uh, an important thing to say is because it is actually a very similar relationship. It's passing on something from, from somebody who's a little bit further along. It's a lot like mentoring. But here's the difference. A mentor is making someone into a little version of them. And a discipler is making somebody into a little version of Jesus. Do you see the difference? Like the, the relationship is similar. It's still a mature person passing, a person passing on something, but what they're passing on is not their life experience. It's how to follow Jesus right. It's how to grow in their faith. It might include some life experience, but it's so much more than that. So discipling is not mentoring, but here is what we mean when we say discipleship. Discipleship is intentionally equipping believers with the Word of God through accountable relationships, empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. And I know that's a long sentence, so let's spend a minute on it. We're intentionally equipping. Like, it's not an accidental thing. 
I think what happens, and this happens especially for guys, uh, we feel like because we've got some Christian friends that we go get beers about and talk about our lives, that we're discipling each other. Or we feel like because we know people at church or we go to a life group that we're discipling. But, but those are accidental conversations most of the time. We're intentionally equipping believers. Notice the word believers is in there. I think the other thing that's confusing is we're not talking about evangelism here. Now, under the banner of disciple-making, you have evangelism, you have to get it started, but you have to do something with new believers. That's what we're calling discipleship. With the Word of God, not a Bible study, hear the difference, not somebody else's opinion about the Word of God, but the Word itself. Through accountable relationships, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, with a purpose that we would replicate our faith, that mature believers would pass on maturity, that would pass on maturity, and this would be a generational legacy kind of thing. That's what we mean when we say discipleship. And look, it can look a little different in different contexts. I've been doing some uh, piloting of, of some replicate groups. You're going to hear more and more about these as we go on. And, and a replicate groups, kind of a, a small group of dedicated, uh, committed guys who are going through the Word together. We're, we're doing discipleship. And I've tried to take that exact same plan and try to use it in my home with my kids. And it didn't work, right? Like, I'm sure one day it'll work uh, when they're mature enough, but... It can look different in different contexts, but is it intentional? Does it involve the word? Does it have the purpose of us replicating? I think the expectation in the early church was that Christians were going to grow up. I think the expectation was that it was a growth environment, as a training environment. In fact, I'm pretty confident of that because I read in the book of Hebrews, I, I, I read a moment where it seems like the author gets frustrated he had just got done saying something that he thought was important. And then he says this, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elemental truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. It's like the author is frustrated. Like the expectation was that you guys were going to grow up and then I came back around and I can't even tell you the things I want to tell you because you need the basics again, right? Have you ever told somebody something and expected that that thing was going to happen and then came back and it hadn't happened? Parents, <laughs> have you ever come home to a dirty room after you were sure you told your kids exactly what to do. The earlier this year, um, my wife and I got to go to Nashville on a, on a, a work trip. And while we were there, um, our kids are finally old enough. We could be out of town for a few days and they'll be fine. And the reason is because my oldest, Isaiah, is very responsible. And so we, we kind of lined it out ahead of time. Isaiah, you need to make sure that your brothers get fed. You need to make sure that they get to school, right? You need to make sure that they're taken care of. And then while we're in Nashville, I get a phone call from Noah, his brother, and he is so sick that he needs to go to the doctor. And I'm like, well, put Isaiah on. And I put Isaiah on, he puts Isaiah on. I'm like, you need to take your brother to the doctor. And he goes, he's not that sick, and hangs up. 
I was, I could have been the author of Hebrews in that moment, like a lot of exclamation marks, right? I was frustrated. I had to call my dad to come like rescue Noah because my son didn't do it, right? There's this expectation that we're supposed to grow up and the author is frustrated because they won't. But I think the culture of the early church was we move on. We don't just stop with the basics. We should become teachers. We should be able to give it away. And I think many people read the story of Priscilla and Aquila, and they see Paul doing this with them, and that's where it stops because a very real thing comes up in our hearts where we go, well, I've never had Paul. And maybe you're here, and that's true. And you go, I've never had the person to pursue me, to pour into me. I've never had that kind of discipleship relationship. Can we just be honest and acknowledge that I think the church has been broken for a while too, right? That it's true that that hasn't been a thing we've been doing for the last who knows how many hundred years, right? Certainly in my lifetime, it's not been normal in church. And yet, I wonder if you were to say to the author of Hebrews, yeah, but I, I've never grown up because I've never had anybody to pour into me like that. And he might say, but you Don't try to understand. Have you ever realized that it's real easy for us to take reasons that are real and turn them into excuses that we hide behind? And it could be a very real thing that nobody has ever poured into you and you've never had that discipleship relationship and yet it's real easy for us to then hide behind that and say, well, then I don't have the responsibility to grow up. And I think the author of Hebrews would be so frustrated in this environment where there's no expectation that we ever grow. And I think part of the problem is you cannot change what you're willing to tolerate, right? And so we tolerate an environment where there's no growing and we never grow. You can either grow or you can have excuses, but you can't have both. And so maybe that's you and you would say, I've never been poured into, and maybe it needs to start now. Right? Maybe you need to be the first one in a legacy of people pouring out. Maybe it needs to start with you. Let's go back to Acts 18. We'll get back into the story. Verse 18 is where we're at. Now, Paul, he stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sisters, and he sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centre because of a vow he had taken. Now, I want to just stop just long enough to point out that Priscilla and Aquila had grown so close to Paul that when Paul said, I'm moving on, they said, well, we're going too, right? Last week, we talked about being an available friend. Can I put a warning label on available friend? If you're going to be involved in other people's lives, it's going to change the direction of yours, Right? And so these guys were available to Paul. They hosted him in their house. And then a year and a half later, they're like, I guess we're leaving Corinth. Verse 19, they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. So wait a minute, just a minute ago, they left their home because they were so attached to Paul, and yet on the very first stop, they stay and he goes. 
I don't think they were just available friends. I think they were a, a responsive followers as well. I think they got to Ephesus and it was like one of those God light bulbs just like came on. It's like, this is why we left home. This is what we're supposed to be doing. They stayed. Paul went on. So they're responsive followers. They're available friends. And they stay in Ephesus. And then down a little bit further in the chapter, in verse 24, it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila are. He was a learned man and had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So we're introduced to this new guy, Apollos, another Jew, who finds himself in Ephesus. And this guy's smart. He's educated. He's an eloquent speaker. Like, this is the kind of guy that, like, ends up with the mega church, right? The guy who just is good at being on the microphone. And, and he's educated. I'm going to guess because he's Jewish, he's educated in the Old Testament scriptures. He probably knows his Bible inside and out. And he even knows about Jesus. But only up until the point of John the Baptist. Do you guys remember what John the Baptist's ministry was? He had a very specific ministry. His calling was to the nation of Israel to prepare them to be ready for their Messiah by convincing them that they were not okay on their own. He had to tell them that they were broken and they needed to repent. They needed to agree with that and change their mind about how they were and then they'd be ready for their Messiah. He had a baptism of repentance. And so Apollos comes in and he's a great speaker but maybe, even though he knew Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, maybe he was unaware that he's the Gentile Messiah. Maybe he didn't know that the Gentiles had been included. Maybe he didn't know about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he only knew about John's baptism. Maybe he didn't know about the new covenant replacing the old covenant. Because in a Jewish context, the Messiah would fit with the old covenant. Maybe he doesn't know that Jesus is coming back. And so verse 26 he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is Priscilla and Aquila's moment. Right? This is their, their moment. And it's because they were ready, because they had studied, because they had learned, because they had grown, that they were able to guide Apollos in the faith. They were a ready guide. This was their moment. Let me ask you, if your moment came right now, how ready are you? Could you lead somebody else in the faith? Could you take somebody who's kind of immature and fill in the gaps? Could you guide them to maturity? Now, I don't want you to miss some important things in here, so we're just going to pause on this verse for a minute. One of the things that I love about this moment in this story is that Priscilla and Aquila developed another leader in a moment that they could have competed with him. Right? Think about this for a second. He's in church. He's in the synagogue. He's standing up on the stage. He said something wrong. How easy would it have been from the back row for Aquila to stand up and go, excuse me, 
I don't know if you got that right. Maybe I should come up and uh, I'll do it. Right? How easy it would have been, because there's this thing in us that wants to be correct, right? But then there's this gross thing in us that wants to be correct in front of other people, right? And how easy it would have been for them to stand up and say, I could look special right now. I could take the spotlight. I could fix this problem that just happened. See, and there's this problem. This is, if you don't get anything else out of this message, get this. There's something inside of all of us that wants to be special. We want to be important, right? That's normal. But here's the problem. The pursuit of special will often cause you to miss the things that are meaningful. Special gets in the way of meaningful every time. And what they chose here is they chose a meaningful opportunity to develop Apollos because they wanted him to win. They didn't need to win. And notice that they didn't confront him in public. What a loving way to start a relationship by pulling somebody aside and saying, I want you to win, brother. I just need to help you figure this part out. Right? And how easy it must have been to hear that after they had already fed him pot roast. Right? Like, like how easy it was. It? They, were, they hosted him in their home. They brought him into their life so that they could lovingly correct and guide him. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. It wasn't that he didn't know. It's that he didn't know what he needed to know. So there was this custom-tailored discipleship moment that took Apollos from where he was to where he needed to be. And they were able to do that because they were ready. They discipled Apollos. They were intentional with another believer about the word of God to replicate the faith properly. But imagine for a moment if Priscilla and Aquila were part of our modern church culture. And they had been convinced somewhere along the line that the best version of a Christian is an ultimate church attender an ultimate member of a church, the ultimate consumer, what if their faith was only ever about them? Would this story have even happened? Right? But they didn't see themselves as consumers. And what's cool is Paul never saw them that way either. See, Paul talks about them later in life. He wrote the book of Romans uh, to, to Christians in Rome later in life. And at the end of the book, he says this, Romans 16, 3. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. I love that. Later in life, they've gone their separate ways. They're not in Ephesus anymore. They're back in Rome. They're hosting a church in their home. But Paul says, hey, say hi to my co-workers for me. See, the church should not be full of consumers. It should be full of co-workers. This is how it's supposed to be, that we pass on our faith to people who then join us in the work of passing on our faith. And so if we wrap up the story back in Acts 18, verse 27, it says, When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived... He was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. I don't know if you know much about Apollos. 
He comes up again and again in the New Testament as well. In fact, he comes up in the Corinthian letter, and Paul, an apostle, calls Apollos his equal. See, Apollos got to the place that he was an apostle in the Mediterranean church, going from church to church, place to place, encouraging, admonishing, equipping, just like Paul, an equal in ministry, and Paul had never even met him. See, Paul had discipled Priscilla and Aquila, who had discipled Apollos, and this legacy of faith came back around, right? You want to know something else I think is cool? Some scholars think that Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, I, I went into that information like I've got a bias. I already had an opinion about who I thought wrote it. But when you think about it, the book of Hebrews is written in the highest form of Greek in the entire New Testament. No other author writes with that kind of Greek. And it's written from an apostle-like person with authority but also relationship from one to another. He knows the people he's writing to, but it's all in a Jewish context, from a Jew to Jewish Christians, about what it's like to be a Jewish Christian, the book of Hebrews. Now imagine a well-educated Apollos Jewish Christian. I don't think it's that far of a stretch. So imagine if Apollos is the one who wrote that thing in Hebrews 5. You don't even try, right? You guys should have grown up by now. Imagine his frustration because he's looking back and he's like, we've been doing this. We've been passing on the faith. I know what it's like. You should have grown. Okay, so Apollos' story continues. And what I love is that Priscilla and Aquila are a part of his story. And what I think happens is we read stories like this and our response goes something like this. That is amazing. In fact, that's, that's great. that would be great if that happened now. I think somebody needs to do that. It's not me. Right? We agree, yes, this should be happening at church. Just not me. Right? I'm not ready. Or I don't have the time. I don't know how many times I have said the words, I'm busy, when somebody says, how are you? How are you? I'm busy. You don't have the time. Or, or maybe you would say, it's not my gifting to disciple people. You ever, I don't know if you know this or not. This is some behind-the-scenes baseball. Um, Christians will weaponize Christian words against each other, right? Oh, well, yeah, that's not my gifting. My gifting is over here. I'm not responsible for that hard thing, <laughs> right? Or maybe you'd say, I'm just not in a position where that's even my responsibility. Isn't that what the church staff's for? Isn't that why we have pastors? Isn't that why I've got, a, I've got a small group leader, maybe that's their responsibility. I'm gonna ruin that for you for the rest of your life right now. See, this modern version of church where we get ministry, where we consume what the church has to offer, that it is for us, is wrong. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told how the church should be wired in the first place. And I'm going to read it. Ephesians 4 verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. I'll pause for a minute. We could do a whole message on what each one of those offices were and what they look like now. And Can we just make it real simple and just say church staff? Okay, for, for now. 
the people who are responsible to put on a, a, a church, right? So Christ gave himself pastors and church leaders to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So he says that God gave church leadership to the church, but it didn't say that he gave church leadership to the church to do ministry. Did you catch that? It says that the purpose of leadership is to equip God's people to do ministry. You notice those words, works of service? You could circle that in your Bible and write ministry. The purpose of the pastor and the church staff and the leadership and your small group leaders is, is to equip us to actually do ministry. And sometimes that equipping looks like providing training or resources or inspiration, right? But the ministry should actually be happening with every single person in the church. Every person should be serving, should be helping, should be praying for, should be hosting, should be discipling other people. And the goal then is that we would all end up mature. You notice that the end-all result of this whole process is mature people? But what I love is built into this, there's a, there's a secret I think what we normally do is we say we need to equip people until they're mature so they can do ministry, right? That we need to send them off to Bible college. You've got this calling, young man. You should go off to Bible college. You should come back mature, and we'll plug you in. That's not what it said. It said that we should equip people to do ministry, and the result will be maturity. The route to maturity goes through ministry. And that's true in my life. Every time that I have grown the most, it's because I'm preparing to talk in this sort of an environment, or it's because I'm about to meet with somebody who's mourning the loss of a family member, and they've got questions that I don't have answers to. And so I've got to study, I've got to learn, or I'm praying with somebody and my faith is stretched because I'm not sure I believe it, and so I have to really dig deep and mean what I'm saying and trust God more. Maturity comes when you minister. The route to maturity goes through ministry. And so I think if we look at this, the way that the church was originally wired was it should be a training center. And yet we've turned it into a superstore, right? The modern church has this culture that has taught us that we're the customers of the church, that we take what we want and leave what we don't want. And I imagine, like, imagine pulling up to a giant red and white building with circles in it, but instead of Target, it says church. And you and your wife go in and you grab a cart, and right off the bat, you're like, where's the grace section? Right? And of course, that one's front and center. That one's there all the time, and it's big because everybody likes grace. Right? So you go over to the grace section, and you're like, I need to feel better about me. Right? Put some of those in my cart today. I need, I need to understand grace. And then, and then your wife wants to go back and look at the worship section, but you're like, you go ahead. I'm going to the cookies. Right? And then at some point, you hear somebody say, hey, do you guys have a holiness section in here? It's like, hey, Jim, do we still have our holiness stuff out from Lent? No? Okay. Could you go see if it's in the back? We, we might have some on clearance. You're going to have to hold on. 
right? We, we have this view of church that we get to take and leave whatever we want, that it's a superstore. And I think it was always supposed to be a training center instead. Ministry wasn't supposed to come to you. It was supposed to come from you. And that brings us back to our mission as a big C church, which we started with the first week in this series, Everyday Disciples. And it's something that's familiar to most churchgoers. It's the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We're going to read it again. Matthew 28, 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What I love to do with stuff like this is I love to figure out what it doesn't say. You know what this doesn't say? It doesn't say go make converts in all nations. It doesn't say just go get people to believe and fill up your churches. You know what else it doesn't say? It doesn't say go be disciples in all the nations. And I think that's what we've turned church into, is I'm going to go be a good Christian and God will sort out the stuff. No, he says go make disciples. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you to do. You notice he doesn't even stop at teaching? Because you can come to church and there's good teaching but he doesn't say, go into all the world, make disciples, and teach them the things. Teach them to obey the things. And here's what's wrong with the modern view of church. We think we've done the church thing because we come to a church service and we've been taught, but there is no way for the person who did the teaching to know whether or not you're obeying. We just cross our fingers. You leave, we're hoping by Wednesday you still remember the message, Right? So we can teach, but we can't teach you to obey. We can only hope. And that's why one of the reasons the modern church is broken is because we accept these moments as the only moments for the church. This is good, but this is not everything. We're supposed to be a training center where we each hold each other accountable to growing, to learning, to obeying. And the problem is we have to grow up, some of us, to make that happen. And then some of us that have grown up need to actually get in the game and start helping. And so I'm going to leave you guys with the, a reminder of what a ready guide is. This is our target for us as we grow into disciples who make disciples. A ready guide is somebody who says, I am prepared and looking for opportunities to help someone else grow in their relationship with Jesus. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to ask yourselves a couple questions in these next few moments. Where are you at in your experience with church? Have you accidentally become a consumer, a customer? Have you been treating church like it's a superstore? Because sometimes the church treats you like customers. I'm not saying it's your fault, but I'm saying we find ourselves there. And if that's true, I want you to ask one of two questions. Do I need to grow up in the faith? If I'm going to be a ready guide, I first need to get ready. Is that where you're at? where you would say, I, I, need to, I need to take this seriously. I need to actually mature. I need to go somewhere. Maybe you've been here for six months. Maybe you've been here for 60 years. And you say, I think it's time for me to grow up. Okay. Now, for 
the next few weeks, we're going to be talking more and more about how we think that might look in your life. But let me give you just a quick plug. We've been doing these replicate groups behind the scenes, and we're, we're kind of rolling them out church-wide. My encouragement to you might be to, to find and get in one. High accountability, high commitment. Imagine a year-long relationship when the whole thing is about studying your word and growing. But an accelerated spiritual transformation. Maybe that's what you need. Or maybe you're here... And you need to ask the other question Do I need to stop being a consumer and start being a coworker? Maybe you don't need to hide behind getting ready. Maybe you're ready enough to get started. You could help somebody else and you could grow through ministry. Maybe you could lead a life group. Maybe you could help with men's or women's ministry. There's lots of avenues to lead, but we need leaders of replicate groups to step up and host. And I think what happens for most people is they say, I want to do that, I could do that, I don't know how. We've developed a booklet that's a starter guide. It has a process and a plan that makes it real easy for you to help your friends grow. But we need people who are willing to do it. Maybe that's you, okay? My encouragement today is don't leave here without at least acknowledging you're in one of these areas where you could do some growing or you could do some helping. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for um, challenge in Scripture that confronts maybe the way that we have experienced truth or, or, or church, and, and the truth sometimes hurts a little bit. God, help us not to be offended by your truth, but be inspired to live into it, to grow and to help others grow and to become disciples that make disciples. We need your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.